Exodus 3, beginning in verse 11. Hear God's word to you. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and every woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters. And so you will plunder the Egyptians. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out his hand and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, Put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was leprous like snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, Take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, 
O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, O oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And he said, What about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you, and his heart will be glad when he sees you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as, as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your right hand so you can perform miraculous signs with it. Thus ends the reading of God's holy inerrant word. May bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. Wow. What an awesome passage. And I had to read it all so we get the big picture. Because this dialogue going back and forth between God and Moses is pretty incredible, isn't it? All right. Let's pray. Father, your word has been read in our presence this morning. We remember what you said in a few books later in the Bible, the book of Deuteronomy. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from your mouth. So these are your words. They are words that were written in the past, according to Romans, uh, that through endurance and the encouragement, uh, encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So this was written for us, not just for people from of old, but people who trust in your son, Jesus, and who hear and heed and trust in your word as imperfect and sinful, and as faltering as we are, Lord, we do believe. Help thou our unbelief. And speak to us now that we might be fed spiritually, that we might be transformed in the image of Jesus, and that we might live by faith for your glory, not our own. It's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. All right. Now, I don't know about you, but I've heard this quote very often. Um, throughout my Christian life, and it goes like this. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but prayer is laying hold of his willingness. And I always love that prayer, and it, it, in that quote, it's, it's absolutely 100% true. How often we go into prayer as if we're begging God, trying to twist his arm, trying to make him do things that he doesn't really want to do. And yet when we pray according to his will, especially as we're guided by the scriptures, we know we're laying hold of God's willingness. He wants to bless us with good things. Um, and as true as that is, though, this is why I bring up that quote. In this passage before us, in Exodus 3 and 4, we're going to learn a different lesson, a different twist on this quote about prayer. And we're going to see this, uh, partially. Uh, we'll, we'll see some of this anyway. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but rather overcoming our reluctance. Isn't that the truth? So I'm going to say that again. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but prayer is really more about overcoming our reluctance. And we certainly see this 
in this passage, because what is this but a dialogue between uh, the Lord and Moses, his servant? And it's basically prayer, right? When Moses talks back, it's like what we do. We, we hear the word of the Lord, obviously not in a miraculous way, miraculous way like Moses did. And then we respond to him in prayer. And we do have that kind of a dialogue. If we know Jesus, it's a personal relationship with the, the real uh, thrice holy God. And so here, what we see is it's prayer really is a way of overcoming um, our reticence to uh, sometimes do what God calls us to do. And that's, that's the truth. I know it's true in my life. I think if we're honest with one another, we're going to say certainly some of the time, uh, maybe more time than others, that's true of us. What's interesting in this text, you can't help, that's why you have to read the whole passage. Um, what just jumps out at you just from seeing the big picture is that Moses continues to give excuse after excuse um, to God um, over and over again. And uh, it's very clear by the end, uh, I, I think that, that saying that Mayor and I like to, like to say in jest, in the end he just basically says, I ain't doing it. I don't do that. That's what Moses ends up saying. What is it, what's what's the, the final word uh, before the Lord convinces him and sends him anyway is when he says, Lord, send please send somebody else. But that's the beauty of this text and the beauty of the, the patience and the mercy and the long-suffering of our awesome God. Because um, in, in the end, after putting up with excuse after excuse, answering every objection and giving Moses assurance after assurance, even miraculous assurances, um, that he will indeed accomplish what he said he will accomplish through Moses, which is to deliver the people out of Egypt into a land flowing with milk and honey, in the end, the Lord finally wins Moses over and convinces him. Um, so what we're going to see is that in this patient process, as God is working with his servant here, uh, we will see, as we saw last week, because it's a continuation, these two chapters go together, we're going to see that in this patient process, God reveals himself to Moses, he re reveals his plan to Moses, and he reveals his promise, particularly his promise of his presence to Moses. So let's take a look at the first thing, and that is the Lord reveals himself. We started looking at this last time, so we're kind of going to be jumping in the middle here, but that's the only thing we can do in terms of breaking it up into little uh, time, a little chunks of time. So as we started looking at this in verses 1 to 12 of chapter 3, I'm not going to speak too much on that, but we do see um, in verses 1 to 12, that God revealed himself to Moses as who? The God of his father, um, in verse 6, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then we also saw that Moses balked at the idea of being sent by God to Pharaoh, to the king of Egypt, um, to bring out the Israelites out of Egypt. That's in verse 10. And then we saw that God asks, so this is a little quick recap, that we saw that he asks God, excuse me, who am I that I should go and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And we learned that Moses was asking the wrong question, wasn't he? The question should not be, who am I, but God, who are you? It wasn't about Moses. And about who he was, but it's really about who our God is. 
and who he is. And actually, God himself shifts the conversation to that, in that direction. He says this in verse 12, I will be with you. To, to the question, who am I? God doesn't even address that. What does he say? He says, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought this people out of, the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Now, we saw last time, God was exercising Moses' faith. He's saying, you trust me. By faith, you do what I say. And you will then see when you come back here with the people that you will worship God in the very mountain I'm talking to you on right now. You and the Israelites will be worshiping me. That's the sign. So that what wasn't going to happen until the future. So what I think is really interesting here, this is really cool. What God was doing for Moses is he was fast forwarding the videotape to the end of the story. He's saying this to Moses. I'm going to show you how this all ends even before it begins. I mean, can you imagine if, if God said, look, I'm, I'm just going to tell you exactly how this thing's going to end. So you already know. You don't have to have any guesswork. You don't have, have to have any doubts. You know for certain this is the ending. So trust me along the way. Well, here's the beautiful thing. Moses did know that, and we do know that. Uh, as I've mentioned a number of times from the pulpit, um, as we've gone through God's word, that's what Revelation is all about and many other places in the Bible. Revelation is just to show the saints who are dealing with intense suffering at the time, by the way. They were being severely persecuted um, and beat down. It was to show the saints, Jesus wins. Let's fast forward to the end. We can put up with anything because we know we're on the winning side. You know, there's all this talk about being on the right side of history. Well, if you follow Jesus and you trust in him come what may, you will be on the right side of history. That's God is promising that. And here in this text, we see way back then as a shadow, God is already telling Moses, it's a done deal. You just go and do what I tell you to do by faith and I will bring my people. So Moses, it's not you that's going to be bringing the people ultimately. It's me. You're just my chosen vessel. But Moses seems to ignore this wonderful fast-forwarding to the end because Moses basically goes back to the question, well, now that you mention it, God, uh, what is your name? Since it's not about who I am, but it's about who you are, let me ask you a question. <laughs> like my wife always says, let me ask you a question. Look at verse 13. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Now, this is awesome because it's in this con the context of a, a wonderful conversation between God and his servant that God now will reveal to Moses and from here on forward to the people of God and to us his name his personal name. And what's really important to see here that Moses is not asking for himself even. Notice what his real concern is. What if they ask me what your name is? In other words, he's worried about whether or not he's going to be received by the Israelites. That's how wounded he was that 40 years ago when he thought that they would recognize that God was going to use him to deliver the Israelites, and instead they turned on him. You remember the one Israelite said, who made you ruler over us? What, are you going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian? And that set off the whole events where Moses 
fled Egypt and ended up being in the desert for 40 more years. So Moses was that whole saying that I don't know if you heard this a lot, but once bitten, twice shy. Well, he was uh, he was pretty shot, and he was very concerned about, hey, these people, uh, I, I, I can't see them listening to me. I, I already did it. I failed. Lord, what, what if they ask me what your name is? He's given another excuse. But here God in his mercy and his kindness and his gentleness, and, and here you just have to see what an awesome God we have. It's such uh, incredible character of purity and perfection and holiness and goodness. Verse 14, God replies to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And then he goes on to say, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Now notice, I want you to see something here. This is some, some deep theology. Hang with me here, but it's, it's just an incredible spot of, of uh, a place in Scripture. There is a transition from I am that I am to an abbreviation, I am sent me. And then there's God's personal name, which is um, all... Um, there's no vowels in it, all consonants. Yahweh, it's, it's Y-H-W-H in Hebrew. And so what I want you to see here is the meaning of these words is I am that I am or I will be what I will be. And then the brief version is just I am. And then Yahweh begins, the first two letters begins with the root from the, the verb I am or I will be. And so Yahweh um, is the fuller version of that, as it were. And so, and the other interesting thing, I want you to see this. In our translations, it will normally, like in the NIV, when the word Yahweh, the name of God Yahweh comes up, it'll translate it as the Lord in small caps. Little cap L, little cap O, little cap R, little cap D. But really, that's not the greatest translation. Because we're talking about um, not just Adonai or Lord, we're talking about Yahweh. That's really the intimate, personal name of God. Now, I'm not going to get real deep into that for time's sake this morning, but we do have to say a little something about this. And what's why would God reveal himself in this way for ages to come to this day? Remember, Jesus identified himself this way. I am. So it's still going on to this day. What does it mean? Well, it simply means this. What God is saying is, there is no uh, qualifier to this. I am, period. And that means I am the self-existent one. I don't derive my being or power or any uh, description from anything outside myself, any person outside myself. As a matter of fact, everything else has its being because of me. I'm the self-existent one. We're talking about also the ascity of God. He needs nothing. He's dependent on no one. And he is the eternal, almighty, self-existent one. He is the God. That's what he's saying. And the interesting thing is he's tying that together. There is that incredible, deep, theological, philosophical, like how do we wrap our brains around it, that he is the God the self-existent one, but this self-existent one, which can sound so ethereal and um, philosophical, 
he is also concretely, so we would know he's revealed himself in space and time um, through his relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now their descendants back in this time, the Israelites. So that God has revealed himself, the real God, the true God, the God of all creation, the self-existent one, has revealed himself um, through his, his covenant relationship with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, um, the Israelites, and now Moses. Um, so it's very important to, to get that, that he is the universal God. He's not one of the local gods, not the fertility God or, 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 or the God of this or the God of, he is the God. That's what we see here. He simply is. The Apostle Paul would later say this in Acts 17, 21. He'd bring it home to us. In him, that's in God, we live and we move and we have our being. That's the God we're talking about, that Moses, that called Moses, that delivered his people from Egypt. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's really important here. And what I wanted to uh, take a few moments out to point out, as we did earlier in our um, preparation for worship verse, um, I dropped the truth bomb on you last Sunday about mentioning that it's the second person in the Holy Trinity, the Lord Jesus himself, who was also present with the Father at the burning bush, and he, along with the Father, together called Moses to go and deliver the people. Now, I'm going to quote from um, John 8 again with a little more context. In verse 8, uh, John 8, 56 to 59, when uh, Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, religious leaders, he says this to them, because they were claiming Abraham as their father. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Now, I remember one time debating an Indi a, a, a gentleman from India, and I was uh, showing from the scriptures that Jesus, he was saying, Jesus never claimed to be God. I said, are you kidding me? You need to go to uh, this particular passage, uh, John 8, where he clearly identifies himself as the I am, uh, the one who revealed himself to Moses who it says, God said to Moses, the Lord said to Moses, that same God, that's Jesus. And then he cussed at me. But hey, I'm thankful he didn't pick up stones to stone me like what happened to Jesus, because I couldn't have slipped away like Jesus did. But thankfully, um, that was the worst I got of it. And I hope I, I was able to plant a seed in his heart that the fact that here in this passage in John 8, it's one of the only passages where Jesus clearly identifies himself as God to his enemies, where he clearly comes out and says, guess what, I am. Now, it's interesting that they knew exactly what Jesus was saying by that because they picked up stones to stone him. They wouldn't, picked up, wouldn't have picked up stones to stone him if he was just saying he was a good prophet. It wouldn't have been that big of a deal, but the fact that he says, I am, they saw that as blasphemy. So they rejected Jesus' claims. They accused him of heresy and they attempted to kill him. But Jesus' sheep, listen, this is important because these things written in the past were written for us, followers of Christ. Jesus' sheep, that's you and me, we believe his claims. 
We affirm his claim to be God as truth and we fall on our knees and we worship him as Lord. There's still more before we leave this point. I just cannot um, pass over this quickly. You'll notice in our last passage of last week of chapter three, that it says in the text that um, an angel of the Lord called out to Moses in verse two, or appeared to Moses. But then in verse four, it switches. It says, the Lord God called him, called to him from within the bush. And then from then on, the rest of the dialogue is all God or the Lord speaking to Moses. So what's this? Is it the angel of the Lord or is it God? It's a bit confusing. And I think in the Old Testament, a lot of times uh, the things that, that are concealed in the Old Testament as mystery are revealed clear, more clearly in the New Testament. And this is one of those cases where what in the world is going on here? Who is talking? Is it the angel of the Lord or is it God? And the answer is, yes, it's both. The angel of the Lord very often, not always, but very often, depending on the context, in the Old Testament is actually um, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, Jesus, the second person of the Holy Trinity, um, is speaking. We had this earlier in Genesis 16 when um, Hagar, it says that, the, that she was speaking to the angel of the Lord, and then she says this, she gave, um, uh, she, she said this about the angel of the Lord. You are the God who sees me, for I have now seen the one who sees me. So clearly, she's referring to this angel of the Lord as God. And it's very important for us to see. And why it's not confusing for us is because now, as uh, Revelation has progressively uh, opened up itself to us, as God has revealed himself to us progressively, we know that John chapter 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. Listen, the word was with God and the word was God. Wow. So the word is distinct from God, but he is God. So that is opening up for us the fact that there is God the Father, God the Son, within the Godhead, within the triune God. As a matter of fact, even known they are two distinct persons, uh, and along with the Holy Spirit, that's three persons, in the one God, Jesus would say this in John 14, 9 to 11. Listen, this is important. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So why do I bring this up here and now? It's important for us to see throughout our study of Exodus, as we look back through the lens of the gospel and through the coming of Jesus Christ, we have to understand that it's both Father and Son who is moving through the book of Exodus to deliver his people, that they are one. And Jesus is present here according to his own words in John chapter 8. So we'll do, we'll do well to keep this in mind, to realize that this, that, you know, sometimes folks will say, well, there was like a different God in the Old Testament than the New Testament. He's different. He is not different. It's the same exact God. Praise his name in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. So 
Um, this was definitely our very the longest point, um, but I do want to, um, as I come to a close on this point, um, I want to bring up this important fact. What Moses had to learn back then is what we have to continually keep in mind today. I thought this was a powerful point. Alec Matyer brought it to my attention in his commentary. He says this. Listen, this, this is going to preach now. Do not refuse to go because you are what you are, but go because he is what he is. You get that? That was Moses' issue. He's refusing to go because he felt inadequate. Maybe because um, he felt um, that he wouldn't be able to convince the people. Sound familiar? Because he wasn't thinking about who God is and what God can do. And very often when it comes to, whether it's evangelizing, whether it's ministering, um, we think, I, don't, I won't know what to say. I won't have all the answers. Um, I'm not the one. God, please just send somebody else. And what we need to remember, it's not about who we are. We go because we know who he is. And we, we stand back in amazement and say, I know it wasn't me. I know that this, this uh, God, as Paul will say later in, um, to the Corinthian church, that we have this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay to show that this incredible and measurable power is not from us, but it is from God. Moses had to learn that way back then. So God reveals himself, continues to reveal himself to Moses and to the people, and he will do that throughout this book of Exodus. Second thing the Lord reveals and the last two points are very short. Um, he reveals his plan. And I only want to point one thing out about the plan for time's sake. Um, he goes on to reveal his plan in verses 16 to 22. You can look that up later on your own. But I want to go back to, to verse 12, which will encapsulate it succinctly for us. God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And in the plan of God, in the purposes of God, this is something that God's people have to continually remember, because I'm telling you, I know myself, we forget this. And that's this. God's plan to deliver his people, to rescue his people, and to deliver them from bondage, was equally a plan to free them up so they could worship him. So it wasn't just from something, it was to something. You get this? It wasn't just to de be delivered from the bondage, uh, in their case, of, of, in Egypt, in slavery, in our case, the bondage of sin, and the dominance of the devil, and the fear of death. But it's in order to free us to something, which is to worship God, and in the new covenant, to worship God in spirit and in truth. That's the freedom that we have, and that's what God has freed us for to have this awesome, incredible relationship with him right here and now through Christ that will last into eternity. That's what's going on here. In other words, God doesn't deliver us so we'd be free to do whatever we want and worship whatever false gods and idols we want to, but he's freed us so that we would worship him. 1 Peter 2.16, live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as what? Servants of God. Isn't that awesome? We have a purpose. We have meaning. God has not only created us, but he's recreated us in Christ Jesus by his grace for this very purpose that we, he was seeking those who will worship him in spirit 
and in truth and serve him and use their freedom, not as a cover-up for evil. See, so many folks talk about wanting to be free, and what they really mean is free to continue to do things that uh, enslave them, right? Because a man is a slave to whatever dominates him. That's what the Bible tells us. But no, he wants to free. God is going to free his people so that they'll be free to serve him, to worship him. Um, and we see this um, even in our passage where God says um, to Moses that he's to tell Pharaoh to let us take a three-day journey in the desert to do what? To offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. So we're saved to serve, we're rescued to worship, and we're delivered to express our devotion to the Lord. That's the second thing we wanted to see from this passage. And the third and last thing is the Lord reveals his promise. And this is a powerful one. Verse, chapter 4, verse 1. What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Man, this guy's incorrigible. Incorrigible. I mean, God just went over all this. And yet, God's response, which he's such a perfect parent, I'd be like, man, I just told you. Don't you have a brain in your head? Aren't you listening? That's not what God does. God actually says, I'm going to give you miraculous signs. How about that, Moses? I will give you three miraculous signs. If they don't listen to the first one, first two, they'll certainly listen to the third. Which, by the way, I didn't see this until I was reading it this morning. God is acknowledging, yes, he's going to get, he, he will accomplish his holy will through Moses, that Moses needs to just go. But God is acknowledging they might not listen to even the first two miraculous signs. So God is acknowledging this is not an easy job to lead the Israelites. And we will see that throughout the book of Exodus. Um, um, again and again, uh, the Israelites give uh, Moses such agita. And I think that's partially what's going on here. I think what, what Moses' reticence is not necessarily a complete lack of faith. Some commentators say that. I think that's so far off. Um, Hebrews 11 tells us he was a man of faith. So he had some faith, even if it was a mustard seed. Now, I think that his issue is, oh, man, he realized being 80 years old and having all that experience and having to deal with physical animal sheep, he realized dealing with human sheep is way harder and it was going to be, um, it would be a call to crucifixion. I think Moses knew that. I think that was his issue. Um, so then, after all this, God gives him these three signs to encourage him. Uh, Moses still has another excuse. I'm not a good speaker. Okay. God's answer, and now you can see God's getting a little firmer here. Who gave man his mouth? Moses, who are you talking to here? Who do you think you're talking to? Who makes man deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Remember who you're talking to, Moses. Now go. I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. Now talk about condescending grace. Talk about kindness. Talk about patience. Talk about long-suffering and care. He's saying, Moses, I, I got this, buddy. I think I can handle it. I created your mouth. Just go. I'll take care of it. At this point, Moses realizes, uh, I'm not getting anywhere with this excuse thing. And every little excuse I bring up, God is just batting it away very easily, easily with no effort. And so basically he says, look, God, I got nothing left, nothing else. 
And he really just comes clean and he's honest and he just says, please send somebody else. I just don't want to do it. I'm done. I'm 80 now. Um, those days are gone. Can you just call, you know, I, I put my time in. You know, I've heard people in the church say that. I'm older now. I used to do the Bible studies. I used to care for help in the nursery. But, you know, I need to just rest now. And actually at this point, what does it tell us in the text? Something very interesting. The Lord's anger burned against Moses. All I got to say is when you have a, the, the holy, thrice holy God who is slow to anger, <laughs> abounding in love, have his anger burn at you. That means, man, you have been, you have really tested him. And it does tell us that God was angry. But what's, what's really interesting is, look at how God expresses his anger. He does not, obviously, does not sin in his anger like we normally would do. His response is still um, compassionate. It's still firm. It's loving. And yet, um, he still says what he needs to say to Moses. And I'm just going to summarize for us what he basically tells Moses. And as we come to a close, this is really important. He basically tells Moses, I'll be with you. Verse 12, I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. Verse 20, now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. Chapter 4, verse 12, I will help both you and Aaron speak and I will teach you what to do. Verse 15, chapter 4, verse 15. The old hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, puts it this way. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine and ten thousands beside. God is telling Moses, and he's telling us that right now through his word this morning. He's saying, I am enough. You know, in this life, uh, we are not promised perfect uh, peace at all times, uh, complete victory over sin, uh, victory over death and sickness in this life. Those things are only promised on the day when Jesus comes back and consummates his kingdom's reign. His kingdom's reign. But we saw this in Genesis and it bears to be repeated here in this text, what we are promised in this life, listen, this is so powerful, is God himself, his presence among his people. Dear Satan, Jesus Christ, is he enough for you this morning? He says he is. And intellectually, we know he is. But will you find your all in all in him. Will you grab a hold of his promise to be with you? Whether he calls you to suffer in literally a prison cell, whether he calls you to, to graciously um, suffer patiently as you wait for him, or whether you have a time of victory or a time of blessing, no matter all those times, he will be with us. He will work what is pleasing in his sight. And even as we minister, it's not about our ministry. It's not about our preaching. It's not about our evangelism. It's not about our serving. It's about doing whatever God calls us to do in his word and watching him miraculously do the work 
of saving people and of sanctifying them, of building his church and bringing his justice, um, beginning to bring it now as we await the day when we will have perfect justice, perfect peace, and perfect righteousness in Christ Jesus. Last thing I want to mention, and we'll get into it more as we go through this wonderful book. We've seen it before. We're going to see it again. But there's a reason when God repeats things over and over again. How often, when you think of Moses, I don't know about, about you, but I should say for myself, I think of Superman. I really think of this awesome saint of God, this great prophet of God that, you know, ooh, we're not even in the same stratosphere as this guy. And yet, as we go through Exodus, we're going to see he was a man of clay. He was a man built of the same stuff as us. He was a son of Adam, like you and like me. He had his faults. He had his struggles. He had his wrestling with doubt and unbelief. Um, he wasn't always as patient as he could have been. Although God did work great patience in him. So what does that prove to us? It proves to us that God delights to use the weak, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, to shame the things that are strong and those who think they're wise. So we have a good God, and that's the real question. It's not who are we as New City Fellowship of Atlantic City. It's not who are we as individuals. It's all about who our magnificent, awesome, glorious God is and how he will exalt himself among the nations. And he delights to do that through the deliverance of his people as he delivers us from sin, death, and hell. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are present with your church and we are not consumed. Just like the fire in the burning bush that was such a strange sight because the bush didn't burn up. We know we don't burn up because Jesus, the second person of the Holy Trinity, God who's come visit us in the flesh because he is our mediator and because he is our savior and because he has suffered and died and shed his blood for our sins. So Lord, be with us now as we go out and we trust and obey, looking to see you do your mighty work of deliverance, of salvation among the nations, and especially to our neighbors next door. It's in Jesus' name we pray for his glory. Amen.